This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. As the end of the Victorian era drew to a close, the residents of London, England were plagued with paranormal happenings. The peculiarities began after a large Russian ship crashed onto the shore. The ship carried boxes of earth, a ferocious dog, and a corpse clutching a crucifix. Later, a strange illness began to disturb society. A proper young lady was afflicted. She was robbed of her color, energy, and later, her life. Witnesses were horrified by two ghastly puncture wounds which marked her throat. Soon after, reports of child abductions began to spread across London. When the children were returned to their families, they too were injured with bloody gashes upon their necks. Panic swept through the city streets when the mysterious occurrences could only be explained by a force that was undead. A force none other than Count Dracula. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Dracula has gone down in history as one of the most spine-chilling pieces of literature and cemented author Bram Stoker as a master of the horror genre. By tapping into taboo topics such as madness, religion, promiscuity, and death, Stoker was able to write one of the most important works of the mystery genre that would inspire generations to come. Although the events that unfolded within the book are from his imagination, the crimes and horrors of which Stoker wrote were inspired by true happenings. And as you know, fact is often stranger than fiction. So what is the story of Dracula? And what are the origins of this bloodthirsty villain that has haunted readers for over a century? Here today to discuss the lore and inspiration behind Dracula is someone who is very close to the author himself. Joining me now is the great-grandnephew of Bram Stoker, author Dacre Stoker. Dacre, let's talk about the origins of Halloween, because at that heart, that played a big influence in the eventual Dracula as Americans know it. Well, it had to, Emily. You know, if you consider, obviously, Bram Stoker was an Irishman, born and raised uh, just outside of Dublin, lived in Dublin, went to school there, worked there before he went off to London. But, you know, not not a lot of people know that, you know, Ireland is the birth, birthplace of Halloween. There is over 2,000 years ago, you know, the Celts 
the Druids, all these folks that, you know, that were the ideas of fairies and banshees and all this stuff came from, they, they were very spiritual people. And they were really, you know, interested or let's say concerned at the change of the seasons, you know, when the, when the summer becomes the fall and the harvest is over and the nights get, you know, longer and darker earlier. And there was this end of season, you know, Halloween, you know, holiday. But it was really originated because this in their eyes was when the veil between the living and the dead was very thin. And so our ancestors were welcomed back. And, and that's why people put on sort of parties and events. But at the same time, not just the good ancestors came back, some of the bad spirits came back as well. And that's why they started with these you know, scary turnip heads as opposed to pumpkins, because they didn't have pumpkins and scary costumes and fires and things to just scare off the scary goblins and fairies. So that's where it all started. And in the interest of Halloween, having a mystery around it and stories and lore, Bram was your great grand uncle. And he has, <laughs> I venture, I argue, you know, none more so than he has had an impact on the sort of delicious entertainment horror that we find from Dracula and how many generations and how many millions of people he has sort of delightfully entertained and horrifically entertained in that way. And you too are an author and you've taken it upon yourself uh, to learn more, to publish more, to reveal more about who Bram Stoker was and, and just as importantly, who Dracula was and all the puzzle pieces behind that. So can you share with us your life's work and what that tells us about Bram and his creations? Well, th yes, thank you for asking, because, you know, I was a, a coach, a teacher, but about 15 years ago, I thought, you know, it's time to really delve into who, who was my famous relative. So Bram was one of seven kids. His youngest brother was my great-grandfather. So that makes Bram, as you said, my great-granduncle. And, and uh, my wife and I just thought, you know, we need to dig into this. Sadly, the generation ahead of me, my father, his brother died. Uh, there was one brother still living, and he, he called me up and said, you know, Dacre, I need to pass to you the stories of the family and things. I've, I've been diagnosed with congenital heart failure, and, it, and you're the only one in the family that really needs, really is interested. So I went on this mission up to Montreal, Canada, where I was born and raised, and, you know, brought my scanner and notes. And, you know, long story short, I really got a taste of what impact Bram Stoker made around the world. And he was really a, a humble Irishman who was, you know, a child that was very ill, wasn't expected to live. Luckily, he recovered after his seven-year mysterious illness, became a champion athlete at Trinity College, also was a, a good student, got a master's in mathematics and became the head of the Philosophical Society, Historical Society, was a founding member of the Dublin Painting and Sketching Clubs. He was an all-around great guy, but he also had a desire for the creative. Even though he had that sort of mathematic mind, that detail-oriented side, he, was, he started into writing. And I actually discovered his journal in one of his great-grandson's attic in the Isle of Wight. They, they didn't know they had it. And I was getting involved in my first research project to write. And I said, hey, guys, can I come over and take a look? And there was this journal that Bram Stoker had kept during his university years. And it showed me sort of a guy trying to bust out of his shell as a creative. And there was poetry, there was romance, but there was some horror as well. So that was, that was the whole beginning of you know, getting me going into 
the authority in the family and then spreading the word and realizing that someone in the family needs to be promoting Bram, uh, protecting his intellectual property, you know, whatever is is still in, you know, not in copyright. So that's that's how it all got going. And, you know, we could press the fast forward button, talk about luckily good co-authors that I've worked with to write a prequel to Dracula and a sequel and lots of other things in between. But yeah, I think we should, we'll stay focused on Bram Stoker for for a few moments. Just for a few moments, because we're so interested in all of that. So, um, okay, first of all, when you read his college journals and there was a bit of horror in there, did you see any precursor to the notion of Dracula? And if not, can you share what his and what you believe um, and you understand his influences were for the actual creation of Dracula, in part America? Yeah, you're right. America does play a role. Um but we've got to back up a little bit because I think one of the first pieces, and you mentioned earlier, it's a puzzle. And I'm like searching all over the world for different pieces. And one of them was this childhood illness. And it was really, really very sad because he was you know, an invalid for seven years. And during that time, I know the stories that he was told by his mother and his nanny, all these sort of cautionary Halloween type stories that nowadays we would think would be sort of child abuse if you tell them. But it's it's a Halloween, so I'm, lots, I'm, I'm sure lots of people are telling scary stories, but you know, fairies and banshees and changelings that are not the leprechaun you see on the cereal or, you know, any of that sort of thing. It, it's really horrifying stuff. But he was also told a story by his mom uh, about the cholera epidemic that she survived as a 12-year-old girl. And she told Bram the story of her witnessing people being misdiagnosed and buried prematurely and then crawling out of the grave. I mean, can you imagine that? As a little seven-year-old, six-year-old boy, sickly yourself, probably wondering that could that happen to you if they misdiagnose you? Because this happened to their neighbor and his mom t- wrote, wrote that story when Bram said, mom, would you write it up? Because years later, Bram used that exact story she told him and then wrote as the basis for a children's story that he wrote, like misery needs company, right? So it, now I know that had an impact. So that's, that's number one piece of the puzzle is the childhood how did he recover? And that's, you know, that's what J.D. Barker and I used to writing Dracul. That was the basis. But then you fast forward, he recovers, become an athlete, and he loves the theater. This is that sort of creative mind. And from the theater, he ends up getting a job with Henry Irving, who was the famous Sir Henry Irving, the Victorian actor. He moves to London, and he starts managing the Lyceum Theater. And with that, they come to America eight times. And on one of those trips... Not only does he meet Buffalo Bill Cody, the entertaining cowboy, and Irving and Stoker actually helped Buffalo Bill come to uh, Great Britain and perform in Edinburgh, Glasgow, London. You know, they were fellow showmen. But, you know, you and I have chatted about, you know, the influence of the American vampire uh, on Dracula. And I am convinced that the newspaper article that Bram had discovered in the New York World newspaper in 1896, and he was still writing Dracula at the time, He clipped out that article and put it into his notes that live in the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia. It mentions the New England vampire scare of the late 1800s. And that vampire scare was actually, you know, misdiagnosis of tuberculosis. Supernatural thoughts were so high in the the head of, of the people experiencing it. Even though they were learned men and women, science wasn't able to catch up with them and say, no, it's a contagious disease, guys. These supernatural beliefs were very powerful, and they lasted many generations. They came over from Eastern Europe to the people working in New England, and they were convinced 
that these people were actually bodies from the grave when they died from TB coming out and sucking the life, sucking the blood out of others. So they would exhume the graves and, and the state, the New England states allowed 50 exhumations at that time. So it wasn't just crazy people doing stuff. It was, you know, as I said, beliefs of learned people. And so Bram saw that. And I'm, I'm convinced that as he was writing Dracula, he thought, ah, you know, these Americans, they're onto something. You know, that he loved America. He thought it was a very progressive country, new, very fresh. He said, I'm trying to write a story. Dracula was a, a contemporary vampire story. So he keyed into that. And he also proved that he pulled something out of that article. Charles Darwin was quoted in the article of discovering the vampire bat in South America. And Brand took those words of Charles Darwin, if you can believe it, from that article in the New York paper and stuck it into Dracula, where Quincy Morris, the American, modeled after Buffalo Bill, and said, you know, yes, when I was in South America, these vampire bats came out of the trees and drank so much blood from my favorite mare, I had to put her down. Well, that was a bit of an exaggeration, because vampire bats just sip little bits of blood from cattle and, and, and horses, but not enough to kill them. But, you know, that's where you know, sort of literary license takes over. So that was sort of the, you know, that was to me, uh, the two elements of America uh, that influenced Bram. And then, of course, he did lots of other research as well that, uh, you know, play into all of this. And can you share a little bit more about your thoughts? It's so fascinating to me, the depth of Bram's exposure to America in the fact that he went eight times. And while there spent many weeks traveling from theater to theater and and Buffalo Bill Cody, who then features as a character or a character based off him. I mean, it's, it's all so prominent to me. So can you share a little bit about his multiple other expertise? How did they factor in? The mathematics, for example, you know, his right. philosophy, how did that factor in to the narrative or to his writings uh, eventually of what became Bram Stoker's Dracula? Well, you know, I'm glad you noticed that because not many people do. There, there's so many facets of Dracula. And, and when I do my presentations around the world, people say to me, they sort of come up almost in a, in a quiet way, confiding, you know, I do read the book every year or I read it every other year. And I always find something different. And one of the things, I, I was just in New Orleans last week, and I was giving a lecture, a dinner lecture, to a group of ladies, paranormal investigators from Australia. And and I had these notes, copies of Bram's notes that, that we're chatting about. And she said, you said that earlier that Bram was the head of the Philosophical Society. I think this is what attracted him, because there he, take, he had taken notes from certain books by hand, and one of them was all about faith and truth and, and different sort of degrees of evil. You know, everything is not black and white. There's different degrees. And what Bram was getting from Sir Thomas Brown, who wrote this book, was how do you factor in when you've got someone like Count Dracula, who is killing for life, but doesn't really kill. He's making them immortal, right? Unless they're really bad and he kills them. But if he wants, so that's what I, that's what I mean. I think you were getting to Emily about, you know, the philosophical side of it. The, the, the legal side of Dracula is another thing that, you know, some people jump on. I know you've got a legal background yourself, but Bram had been a clerk in the Petty Sessions legal department. He got, a, he got promoted to be inspector of all the 
30 different counties in Ireland to make sure the clerks were doing the right job. So he traveled around Ireland by train and by carriage, going into the different courts and checking on the people there to make sure they're doing their job, which if the listeners haven't already picked up on that, doesn't it sound an awful lot like Jonathan Harker traveling by train and by carriage going to Transylvania to check up on the count to help him consummate the real estate transactions that he was doing to buy his homes in London. Bram Stoker was very much Jonathan Harker, or Harker was made up of a lot of Bram Stoker. That legal mind of Bram's came to play, not only in the whole character of Harker, but then different parts of the story involved legalities. The Count had to arrange the transportation and the importation and all the legalities to bring 50 boxes of dirt into, into, uh, into England and take it off of the ship and onto trains. He couldn't do it himself, so he had to have his, his people do it for him, people that he'd hired. The other thing that had a, had a definite connection to Bram's come to America eight times, as, as you say, is the train travel. I found one of Bram's maps. He had purchased a map, but he drew on it all the lines with a straight edge of the exact train routes that he was going on from one city to another, how long it would take to get there, so I could match it up to the letterhead of the different tour he was on. So, oop, that's his seventh tour because he went to all these cities. What do you think Bram did in, in Dracula? He had Jonathan Harker on trains. He had the Band of Heroes on trains. He had telegrams going out. He had carriage rides. He had the Baedeker Guide to make sure everything was lined up. Why? So it appeared realistic. So this is, you know, this is to, to sort of long-winded answer your question. All of these things in Bram's own life, he was able to insert into the novel to not only put himself in there, but also make the novel seem real. So it was written between 1890 and 1897, but it was on his daytimer, that's another thing, 20 pages of his own daytimer in the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia, all lined up perfectly with 1893, the lunar cycles, the days of the week, all the dates. And because this was an epistolary story, it was very, very, it seemed very accurate. And that's what really kind of struck a nerve with people reading this story, not just a fantasy Gothic novel. It seemed real. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Enthrallingly detailed is how I would describe it um, in all of those areas that you just described. And also, and this is just me as a reader and as an avid fan, as you know, uh, for so long, but I saw it always as a love story. I actually saw it first and foremost as the love story, um, obviously, between Count Dracula and Mina, but then Jonathan and Mina, because it was his pursuit of, you know, her protection as well. And the other details, the astronomically minute details of the logistics, the legalities, travel, et cetera, those were sort of, to me, the, the you know, beautifully developed background. But 
um, I saw it more of a love story and less of a horror. I know you've, or tell yeah. me your thoughts on that. First of all, it's well, okay no, if you it, say, it's, M, it's, you're it's, dead it's, wrong. It's, <laughs> no, you're, you're not wrong. It, it's very subtle. And, and let me say this, that the Mina character in the book is it, the relationship between Dracula and Mina in the book. There are definite undertones of, of love and respect mm-hmm. and pity. But I will say it's more magnified and has become more magnified in the movies and, and other novels. Mm-hmm. And the 92 Coppola film, I think, did a great job, a very mm-hmm. creative job. And I got to know the writer Jim Hart very well. And that what, what he did was, you know, that, that, and it's great. Movies take license to make something original, right? So in the, in the 92 Francis Ford Coppola film, Vlad Dracula's wife commits suicide. She jumps out the window of the castle because she doesn't want the Turks to, to, to get her and torture her. So she dies and she cannot be buried in a consecrated Christian burial because suicide is a mortal sin. So that's why Vlad Dracula um, rebels against the church and stabs the cross and drinks the blood. He converts to a, to a vampire. And then when Jonathan Harker comes to visit, which of course is hundreds of years later in Dracula's time, Vlad Dracula sees this picture that he's carrying with him of his of his uh, fiance at the time, and and has a strong resemblance to his wife that commits suicide. So so that's that's one of the things that he's trying to do when he comes to London is reconnect with his with his wife. Now in the novel, that's much more subtle. He does actually Dracula does pursue Mina, and he pursues her after he has his way with Lucy, which is a bit of a I think a statement because Lucy is, you know, the, an aristocrat. Lucy's biggest problem, not only is what, you know, what fancy dresses to wear, but which of the three suitors she's going to choose to marry. And I think that's a statement by Bran that's like, okay, the aristocrats in the world are sort of a dying breed because if their biggest problems are clothing and, you know, what, what rich guy they're going to marry. So she goes first. Dracula has a number of blood drainings with her, and she ends up dying, and then the band of heroes have to stop her from becoming a vampire. But Mina becomes aware of this, and she has pity on the Count, who is being pursued by these, you know, her husband and Holmwood and Morris and Van Helsing, knowing that they're going to kill her like they did to Lucy, staking and cutting off the head. And she constantly reminds them, even, Emily, after she has had the blood exchange herself, because she is so up, you know, she's so upset with what could happen to the Count, she, she hardly thinks of herself. And there's a really amazing scene on the train at, near the end of the story when she says, please have, have pity on him. You may need to pity me as well. And you get this hint also at the end, a little bit spoiler alert, when let's say something bad happens to Count Dracula, she gets this look, you know, this look in her in her face while she sees Count Dracula kind of coming to peace with how he sort of escapes or not, who knows? So subtly, but there's definitely that undertone. And I'm I'm glad you picked up on that because she is the modern woman who, darn it, if she wants to have, you know, her time with a supernatural character she can and bram has made her the modern woman because he's a bit of a feminist himself you know his mom was a an, an avid activist for female rights and has you know managed to, 
deliver papers to the all-male statistical and social inquiry society. She is the model in Bram's mind of the modern woman, and Mina is a personification of that in the novel. I wonder, too, tell me your thoughts on whether he is messaging about the gravitas of the working class or the educated class, you know, below the aristocrats, that he's making the point that while Lucy, her biggest issue is deciding between suitors, we have Jonathan, who is, you know, a committed, steadfast, educated man who's traveling all over to sort the affairs of an equally earnest, you know, in his opinion, international businessman and the like, that essentially the the world is is being ran by um, educated, earnest folk, but it's being overseen by sort of fluff and nonsense, which uh, those tenors <laughs> exist in, in Ireland and the UK's history, quite frankly, so or quite robustly. So do you feel that Bram might have felt that as an Irishman and as a um, Trinity scholar and, and the like, and how as well the empathy for the sick, you know, as, as he yeah. was sick for seven years. And as Mina says, you might have to have pity on me as in I'm, I'm already afflicted. You don't know it. I might be succumbing to this, you know, again, and seeing the horrors of vampirism in the United States for over a hundred years uh, that he encountered portions of that. Do you feel that was presented as well there? Emily, I'm, I'm, it's like you've written a paper, right? You're just telling, you're not admitting you've written a paper on the sort of the, the social <laughs> side of Dracula. You're absolutely right. And we'll just add one more thing to it, because I think I think what Bram is telling us subtly, you know, is that the world w- will be run by the by you know people who are rolling up their sleeves and working. Modern women are one of them. Because Mina Mina is that, and she learns to use the typewriter, and she's the one. I mean, th- th- there's this one scene somewhere around chapter 15, I think, where Van Helsing asks Mina to come into uh, uh, Doctor Seward's office. And she sees this uh, phonograph and she sees a typewriter and she recognizes what she has to do is get the notes off of the recording phonograph and type it up. She's also got the Jonathan Harper's diary. She's got some of her letters. So Van Helsing, as smart as he is, a doctor, a philosopher, a lawyer, right, an educator, but he's he, he is not as practical minded as Mina is. And so he's having a hard time convincing the band of heroes, the men who are sitting in the other room with their cigars in their port, waiting for Van Helsing to come in and deliver the goods. And it's Mina that has to correlate all that information about the different observations from the different characters in the story. She pulls it together, delivers to Van Helsing. He then brings it into the room. And then within 15 minutes, the band of heroes figures out, oh yeah, there is a vampire running about. We better do something. So that's a statement about, you know, how sometimes you got to bang these guys on the head. The other piece I wanted to throw in there, because there, there's one additional piece that you probably will get, because I know we discussed it um, once before, and that is the plight of people with mental health problems and the Renfield character. Yes. And the, the Renfield character, I am totally convinced, again, is an extension of what was going on in the Stoker family. I mentioned the mom already. Well, one of the papers she delivered to the all-male social statistical society in Dublin was the education of the deaf and the mute. How we, we just, you, you can't just throw them in prisons like they were doing in Ireland and England. You've got to take care of these folks and you've got to rehabilitate them as best you can. 
Graham's older brother Thornley, Sir Thornley Stoker, who was the head of the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland and a very you know, decorated doctor who did a lot of surgeries before they were even names for them. He provided Bram with all kinds of medical information in Bram's notes to help him write Dracula. And one of them was all about how to deal with um, what a mental patient may be saying. So much so that a friend of mine who is the keeper of the books of Marsh's Library in Ireland went to the Washington Folger Library and found the manuscript for Personal Reminiscence of Henry Irving, a, a book Bram talks about Irving, but he also talked about himself. And he said that he went to the uh, Millbank Prison in London to interview mental health patients so he could get a better idea how what their vocal patterns would be, what their behavior was like, all so he could describe Renfield accurately in the book. But again, this is just as you said earlier, it's all sort of this underlying sort of focus of microscope on society and what Victorians were dealing with and how they can improve. And Bram has subtly put that into this, you know, gothic horror story as sort of a warning. I have to say that sounds like the most amazing position of all time is to be the keeper of the books. <laughs> My dream job. Isn't that great? Yeah. Let's dip back quickly, if we may, for listeners and, and touch on the American vampire hysteria that occurred for, as I mentioned, over 100 years in some of the northeastern states and Bram's exposure to that, um, including by way of that article. Can you share a little bit about the orthopraxy that went on at that time? Essentially, what people were doing when they thought someone was afflicted with vampirism and then how that uh, ritual effect and how um, sort of the the – yeah, the, the ritual part of that, how that also presented in Bram Stoker's manuscript. So, um, yeah, it's it's really quite interesting. And what, what I find really interesting is the consistency from uh, similar vampire scares in the medieval days. And uh, I have dug up uh, other, other vampire researchers done the same. There's a number of treaties that have kind of floated around the world starting in sort of the 1600s that have coincided with other uh, contagious outbreaks of contagious disease, either cholera, uh, certain plagues, illnesses where people wouldn't under, who did not understand germ theory would be dumbfounded. Science wasn't, hadn't caught up to explain all that to them. And religion was getting very upset and organized religion, you know, kind of had a real stronghold over people's behavior when they were living, their attitudes towards death and the afterlife. And it was a, it was a wonderful thing because if you could tell people, all right, your time on earth, if you behave, you work hard, you're diligent, you come to church on Sundays, you listen to what I have to say, you'll have a wonderful eternity in heaven. If you don't, you're down below in hell and you know, we know how to get there. It's through the, the you know, the, the sort of the, the volcanoes that spew up all this molten lava. So those treaties that Bram had access to and, and, and I've looked at all carry on because these were the consciousness of people that came to the Linden States. So the rituals that, that I'm going to get to eventually uh, were very, very similar. And what was happening in, in Europe, and I don't mean not just Eastern Europe, we're talking all over Europe and Asia. The same thing's happening 
in New England. And, and, and essentially we use the New England model because it's, it's very similar. It just happened a couple hundred years later. So tuberculosis, we know, was very contagious and people were living in very close quarters, you know, smaller homes, sometimes two or three people to a bed. And when this got into uh, people's lungs and they were kind of coughing up and spitting up blood, it was called wasting disease. So the bodies were sort of shriveling up. Uh, it was, was, was really horrifying. And people would not die instantly. So there was a lot of misery involved in it, but, but, you know, a lot of like the cholera. And when somebody would die within the family and they would then have a proper burial, the others, without knowing, were had, had caught the disease, but the symptoms didn't come for a couple of days. So what would happen is once the mourning period is over, and now two or three, four days later, somebody else begins to have this same sort of coughing up, a little blood coming out, the next day it's a little bit more, and they begin to hallucinate, wake up in the middle of the night and think that, you know, Brother John has come out of the grave and, and, and sitting on top of their chest. They felt this tremendous weight. And so it was, it was all like, well, what's happening? The body is wasting away. Something's going. There's blood laying all over the place. Brother John, his soul or he is coming out of the grave and taking the blood from the living. It's not, the, it's not the germs from the TB, it's the vampirism. So what these folks would do, and this is where there were some sometimes differences in, in uh, you know, sort of practices. Often they'd go to the priest and say, you know, we, we need you to come and, and have some sort of ceremony to, to stop this curse. Or they'd go to the doctor, and the doctor didn't have medicine that worked. So after a couple of trips, the doctor said, to heck with this, we're going to take matters into our own hands. So this is where the exhumation of the graves would take place. And this is not something that was, was normally done, Emily. I mean, people don't dig up graves. And they were tremendously surprised when this would happen. Because during the cooler months, the bodies would decompose very quickly. And if a body was going through decomposition, as, as it will, the body bloats because the gases in the body during the breakdown. So the belly looks big. Sometimes the the red liquid comes out of the mouth or the nose. The hair looks like it's growing longer because it's receding, and same with the fingernails. So these folks that are really concerned about the supernatural or this body, my relative, coming out and reanimating and getting coming back to some sort of life, undead situation, had all the signs and symptoms, blood around the mouth, full belly, full of blood. So what did they do? They figured out ways to stop that person from coming out of the grave. They would stake them to the ground. In some cases, it was hard for them to do it, so they'd get town elders to cut off the head, break the legs, do whatever it would take to keep that vampire, Stregoi, Nosferatu, whatever they call it, in the grave. Sometimes turn them upside down. So there's lots of these rituals that, that you chatted about that were consistent throughout you know the world and this is what gets me and others is without communication in those days other than writing and treaties was beginning just beginning how did everybody know to do that how did everybody get the same idea to these deviant burials you got to keep the guy in the grave is it common sense or is it with something just people would make come up with a, a brilliant idea that x body and grave is causing this to somebody. Why? 
who is now wasting away. There must be a correlation. We got to stop this from happening. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. It's so funny just because every time, every time I talk, I just love it so much. And, you know, I was a preteen. If I can make this about myself just for a quick second. I was a preteen when I read Bram Stoker's Dracula for the first time. And it was just, I mean, as I used this word before, but it was enthralling to me. And half of it, you know, I realize now I didn't even understand, you know, the notion of a sanatorium and the like. And there was so much that that then sparked my interest to develop and learn further. And then, you know, reading it again as an adult, it just it's it's such an incredible adventure. It is such an incredible world um, that your great grand uncle created. And also, I feel like I told you before, as I strode into my junior prom hairstylist, she, I brought in the VHS cover of the movie and I insisted on my hair being done just like Mina's for my junior prom, <laughs> which is so funny and probably so inappropriate. But it was so gorgeous with the braids and the Victoria, you know, it just, it was an yeah. amazing, it was an amazing experience um, for me and continues to this day. And part of what I love about your journey and your mission and so much of what you've accomplished um, is your contribution to that world. And you're peeling back of the fact that as readers and fans, we actually only had perception of a portion of what Bram had written and that his editors has had actually clawed back, had the curtain pulled over so much of that world that he created. Can you share with us today some of what Bram created that we didn't know about and that you have since published, including and especially the first line of his original manuscript? Well, the thing about uh, about this is that I, I've been lucky. You know, with the Stoker name, you get access to places that other people may not get access to. Um, and I meet people who are, who are very learned in Dracula scholarship and, and will give me little hints and help put me in right directions. Uh, I've been able to work with Dr. Elizabeth Miller and Robert 18 Bassang, who are no longer living. Um, mm. They died over the last few years. Um, but I've managed to to write books with them and get a lot of, um, you know, a lot of their um, knowledge passed on down. And Robert and I were able to independently um, visit Seattle, Washington, where the Paul Allen estate actually owns the original typescript of Dracula. And, and, and we talked about puzzles earlier. This is a really big piece of the puzzle. And it's probably about five of them because it wasn't all that well known how it got there. But it also wasn't known what was really in there because not many people have looked at it and it has never been published. You have to get the, you have to get the personal invite to go and see it. Well, I've changed that a little bit because I've been able to publish things that I remember from it uh, in an annotated Dracula uh, with Robert. Dracula annotated for the 125th anniversary has things that I'm about to tell you. And that is, we have a really good idea what's in the first 102 pages that were edited out of the story. J.D. Barker and I fictionalized that in our prequel to Dracula, because one of the things we found, and the prequel is called Dracul, was answering your question. The original preface of the story is included, this story is real. And and the way I took that was, okay, he's either pulling our leg, it's a good art, or he's really telling us something. 
And, and I believe that Bram believed many people had good reason to believe vampires were real. And, and to what degree, what type of vampire, we don't know. But the whole concept of creatures taking life out of others was real. And could it be the romantic side? Could it be the more revenant out of the grave side? But the bottom line is he convinced us, at least J.D. Barker and I, and I know many others who I've met, that the story had a lot of realism to it. And so when digging into the first 101 pages, I have now come to the conclusion, and, and Robert 18 Basang would be very proud that I'm able to say this uh, on this show, is that the first chapter was a series of letters that Bram Stoker had written between many of the characters in the story to set the stage for the novel. Now, Bram was a theater manager. He wrote a ton of letters in his life, and a lot of them were setting the stage for a performance, labor labor contracts, uh, information he needed, uh, different costumes, different actors, patrons. He wrote letters all the time. And so it made total sense. When we found the notes in Philadelphia, you know, across the country, and I come back to the typescript over here in Seattle, and I put the whole thing together, it's like, oh, yeah, this is a series of letters. And it would have, and he he literally listed, he didn't write the letters out, but he wrote what, who they were to and who they were from. And then chapter two has actually been published separately by Bram's widow, where she actually says, this was a chapter excised from my husband's most famous work. And it is called Dracula's Guest. And I highly, highly recommend any of your listeners, you want to get a good Halloween scare. If you know Dracula, or even if you don't know Dracula, you can go to bramstoker.org. It's a free website. And all his public domain work is there for free. And you can read Dracula's Guest and you'll be blown away that that is Jonathan Harker en route to Transylvania. And he stops in Munich for the night because the train schedules, you know, the trains don't run like they, like they do now. You've got to sometimes wait a day or two for the next train from Munich on to Transylvania. So he waited, and I won't spoil it for you, but he had, let's just say, some kind of vampiric event. But before he got on the train, chapter three, I'm convinced he walked into the Munich dead house. Now, I'm going to take a break for a second and throw this back to you, Emily, because when we, you and I have chatted about the Victorian era and the morning rituals and how people were laid out in dead houses, now is your time to try to figure out why would there be an interest in the Munich dead house and what were people doing? in the Munich dead house once they were dead. What, what's the whole thing about laying out bodies back in the Victorian era? Any idea? Oh, gosh, I'm going to fail this. All I can think about is how I was there in Munich for Oktoberfest. There's nothing wow. celebratory about these the dead houses. Um, was it to ensure, in fact, that they were dead? Bingo. After, after the... Oh, yes! See? I got, got it. it. Okay. Thanks so to you because you shared about no, that. No, keep going. Keep, keep going because you you, okay. you know your stuff. Come on. Well, that given the after the cholera epidemic that so many were buried uh, prematurely, that there were twofold ways. It's my understanding that that were then adopted to ensure against it. Number one, the bells on the grave. 
that there were literal structures that were built within the caskets so that if someone were to wake up from a perceived death, they could ring a bell that would toll above the grave and people would come dig them up and rescue them. And also that there would be a period where they would lie in state essentially and wait and to ensure the bodies were in fact dead before the consecrated burial. And it's my understanding too, because I think you and I talked about this, that weather played a part, not necessarily in Munich, but it certainly did in the Northeast during the the TB epidemic because the ground was too hard for them yep. to be buried. So it certainly, it sort of amplified, um, I think, the fear because the bodies weren't buried at all. They were still out. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And so in Munich, there, there is, I'm not sure if it's still there, but it certainly was. I've done my research. Bram actually mentioned the Munich Deadhouse right next to uh, a certain museum. And I know that Bram went to the museum from his from notes. So I am sure that he and Irving went to the Deadhouse. Now, you ask, why the heck would you go to a Deadhouse to look at these bodies laid out? Because there was a rule, three days laid out. Because as you just said, we want to make sure they're not going to be very prematurely. There was tremendous uh, flower arrangements. Why? So we didn't get the same. Everything was marble because it's cooler. And so it was very, very elegant. So families would go and pay their respects during that time. But they also had little, little strings attached to their foot to bells, just like you mentioned in the grave. But if somebody was to start shaking or waking up, then the the man in charge would come. Oh, ding ding! That's uh, that looks like Mister Stoker there. He he's not dead <laughs> after all, because you know medical science wasn't very advanced, especially during times of cholera like the one in 1832 in, in um, Sligo, Ireland. The doctors yeah. and the nurses all died first because they they didn't know how to stop the contagious disease. So the people who were making the decision to put Mrs. Stoker in the grave didn't know how to take a pulse or couldn't figure out if it was a catatonic state. They just put him in the grave because they had to make room for the next body. So the Munich dead house, Bram actually mentioned Harker walking in there, and he he actually developed the plot a little bit. Imagine this, Emily, if you walked into the Munich dead house and you see a body kind of lift up amongst all the flowers, face amongst an ashen gray face amongst the flowers rising up, and then he gets spooked and runs the heck out of there. In the novel, when Mina and Jonathan go into London for Peter Hawkins' funeral, and the same thing happened in the 92 Coppola film, they see that face. That's the first time Harker sees Dracula's face in London, and it's the second time Harker sees him if if this wasn't excised out of the novel, because it's the same face as a Munich. So these three bits, oh, as well as that night, Parker goes to the, the opera. And what's playing at the opera is uh, Van der Kirken, which is the story of the Flying Dutchman. <laughs> and the Flying Dutchman is this cursed ship that cannot ever go back to, to shore. So this is foreshadowing i am convinced of the voyage of the demeter and that and this you know this is just a little something to get the readers going a cursed ship and 
all those things for whatever reason. I, I, I think it's because the book was too long. Uh, and the and the editors said, "Hey, come on, we got to get on with it," uh, because back in those days, paper was expensive, ink was expensive, the printing process was expensive, and Dracula was itself already, I think, four hundred eighty-five pages. So taking out three chapters kind of made sense. But you can I- you can see those. Uh, you know, this is a shameless plug, but I have put this all together again with Robert's help. Dracula annotated for the one twenty-fifth anniversary. You can get it at Amazon. But it's also really satisfying to me that I've been able to combine pieces of the puzzle, the Dracula notes, the typescript, and let the readers actually see what was in Bram's wheelhouse as he was thinking this through. And, you know, you and I, Emily, you were always subjected to editors, either on the air or in writing. They chop things out that you want. Well, in this case, the author gets the revenge on the editor and I get to put you know the book back together again a little bit. Right. The author's descendant. I love it. I'm so grateful to you for that. I have to say, um, because I am of the ilk where more is better. And I know it's, you know, that call me lazy in that way. I know that brevity is more sophisticated and better. But for me, you know, the thought of all that material being excised out, especially that first line, it just kills me. No pun intended. So I absolutely <laughs> love that you and and the people that you've worked with have resurrected, no pun intended, all of that material. And I have yeah. them all by my bedside still, Dacre, all of your books um, and the original Dracula are still by my bedside, um, along with my other favorite novels. Can you, uh, as a as a final question, before we get your final thoughts, can you describe your understanding of the three tenets, the three elements that you think went into the actual character of Dracula for Bram? His influences, as your understanding of yeah. what Dracula actually was or is. What- yeah, that's great because you know this is the time of year everybody dresses up as Dracula. You know, we, we, we it's personified in products and everything else. But you've got to realize everything else I've told you. He merged different castles together. He, he, you know, Harker is a bit of him. You know, his mother and his sister a little bit of Mina. Well, Count Dracula uh, is partially. If we were to be making, let's say, a, a nice like a, a smorgasbord of a, a great meal, he's a little bit. Vlad the Impaler, because mm-hmm. he did find two books, one in the London Library, one in the Whitby Library. Bram was desperately seeking the backstory of a real person that had really sort of bloodthirsty background, right? A warlord who impaled people, wasn't a vampire, didn't drink blood, but he was from a mysterious far off land. You know, the, the, the civilized world ended in Budapest, Hungary at the time, so Transylvania and Wallachia was, you know, out there, this is where he hailed from in real life. So Bram got a good dose of that. But then he also combined him with Henry Irving, his boss. Henry Irving was a very strong, tall, you know, debonair guy who did method acting that would sort of take his roles a little bit too far sometimes on and off the stage. And one of the roles he played, Emily, was Mephistopheles, the devil's assistant in the play Faust. So this devil creature that was Irving was kind of you know, blended together. And then Bram took all three of these to make his Count Dracula. So you have uh, the, the prince from, from Wallachia turned into next door neighbor Transylvania. We get a little bit of Henry Irving, Mephistopheles to make this perfect devil incarnate. 
which is Vlad the Impaler, turned into Count Dracula. Now, many other writers and screenwriters have kind of taken that merger apart. And actually, as I said, Jim, Jim Hart did um, with, with Francis Ford Coppola's film, uh, Luke Evans in Dracula Untold. They were all like 100% Vlad the Impaler. But Bram's Dracula was more that total man in black, not the Bela Lugosi looking guy or the Christopher Lee debonair suave guy. He was a real, you know, man in black who was really, you know, not far removed from the revenant from the grave. But he could dress up and, you know, mix in with people. But he was pure evil. That's what Bram was creating, because that's what the devil was. And the devil was mentioned in two of the books connected to the name Dracula. And the other final thing is Bram was a religious man. People think, oh, he wrote about the devil. He was a pagan. No. Bram realized the importance of religion, but he also recognized the importance of, of sort of pagan rituals. So he combined those as well. And he was a Protestant. His Bible that I found in all his research, one more piece of the puzzle, had only three lines, three things underlined. And one of them was resist the devil, have faith in God. And when you think of the faith that band of heroes had to exercise to pool their strength, to pool their resource, as well as the strong mina, that's what it took for them to banish and, and chase back Dracula. I won't say destroyed him because the jury is still out if he was destroyed or not, because there's no wooden stake involved. But it's the faith in goodness and humanity is what Bran kind of harnessed with all the goodness of people to defeat the supernatural. Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. Can I ask you, as I recall, his manuscript also had a different ending or that Bram yeah. intended a different ending than we were given from his editor. Are you at liberty to share what that is? Absolutely. That's another thing I divulge in this annotated edition. And I'm glad you asked because up until finding this ending, it was like, well, all this debate. Quincy Morris stabs the Count in the heart with a bowie knife and Jonathan Harker slits his throat. Doesn't decapitate, doesn't put garlic in. Yes, there was a heat of the battle against the gypsies, but it was a real question. Why did Bram do that? It wasn't a very definitive ending to the Count. And yet when I discovered in that typescript out in Seattle that right after that happened, what I just described, there was about three quarters of a page that had lines crossing it out. And those lines were crossing out a volcanic eruption that happened right after the count crumbled in the dust, which raises the question of the count had shapeshifted into fog, into mist, he now shapeshifts into dust when he escapes. Why the volcanic eruption? Was the volcanic eruption some higher power down in the portal to hell, which is the volcano, which is right here? Was it Dracula escaping into the portal to hell in the volcano right there? Because funnily enough, also in Bram Stoker's notes, he left us the coordinates to this actual location where this battle happened. And I've been to that place, I've been with my son, and I've been with uh, some of my friends in Transylvania, it is an extinct volcano. So Bram Stoker planned to have a volcanic eruption at the end of the novel. And as detail-oriented as he was, you know, I go back to his, his, his days at Trinity, as you asked earlier, 
he was so detail-oriented by God, if he was going to have a volcanic eruption at the end of the novel to either kill Dracula or kill off the band of heroes, it was going to be on a, on a volcano. So there is now a plaque on the side of that caldera with permission from the National Park saying this is the site of Bram Stoker's fictional castle. Spoiler alert, there is no castle there. The castle that he used in his description is about 400 miles to the south, Castle Bran. And it is no question that two of the books in the London Library that Bram used for his research had sketches of Castle Bran. The interior of his fictional Castle Dracula was all the way in Scotland. And, and that's where Bram wrote the novel. And he visited Slane's Castle in Cruden Bay, Scotland, when he was visiting the Earl of Errol while he was writing the novel. In your heart of hearts, do you feel Bram was writing not a mystery ending, but to be clear? Or do you feel that he was writing a mystery that the reader would be left not knowing whether the volcanic eruption symbolized a return to his home as a portion of Mephistopheles, or he was, or that that it was expending because now and forever it's been extinguished. You no, know, no one's ever asked me that question, and I'm glad you did because here I get the answer. I, I think Bram wanted an ambiguous ending because he wanted people to keep thinking. And it's because the one interview I ever found about Bram in a newspaper, in a British newspaper, the interviewer asked, is there any message to the story? And he said, oh, there's plenty of messages. Whoops. <laughs> but I want the reader to figure it out for themselves. And I think that's the ending that you just touched on, Emily. I think that's exactly what Bram Stoker was trying to do, was to create a degree of ambiguity so that there was going to be more questions, more mysteries for the next, well, we're now up to 127 years since the books were published. What I love so much about that is he was so fastidious, so painstaking with his details that the any mystery at all is about things that he purposely wants us to be mystified about and to keep thinking about so that there's no mystery where that volcano was located. He gave the exact coordinates. There's no mystery as to the you know, tone and intonation of those mentally afflicted, he nailed it, right? So any, any questions the reader has is about, a, is a, it's a conundrum that he created, that he's in right. charge of. And, and the, one of my favorite quotes leads to this, what you just said from the novel. There are mysteries which men can only guess at, which age by age they may solve only in part. I have chills for the 18th time. This has been my favorite conversation <laughs> of all time. Maybe up up there with the first conversation I had with you before. Oh my gosh, Daker, you are such a wealth of just deliciously delightful, fantastic information. Such an incredible world that your family created that you have contributed to. Um, I'm so honored and so deeply grateful to you for your time today and for sharing all of that. And I, my dream is for you to lead a tour, by the way, where we get to go to all of those locations, it, like the inside of the library, the libraries and the books and the notes and the castles and like literally everything. Well, Emily, Do you have any plans? The offer is open. The offer is open. I actually lead tours to Transylvania. We go to that yes. mountain. I do take paid people to Whitby and Scotland to see the places. Uh, I haven't yet taken people to the Rosenbach Museum in Philly, but maybe you and I have to organize a U.S. tour. <laughs> and we go to Seattle to see the typescript, and, and uh, we find a Buffalo Bill Memorial somewhere in the middle of the country. 
But, you know, there are a lot of people as interested as you are in literary tourism to get to feel the vibe, to feel the connection to these novels that mean so much to them. And, you know, it's more than just Halloween, but boy, what a great time of the year to be focused on on Dracula. And, and thank you for having me on the show and, and for your continuing interest, because you've done great things in highlighting American Vampire and, and Dracula and so other. So my hat's off to you as well for uh, bringing it to everybody's attention, sharing with your listeners. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com.